Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, on today's show, I had the pleasure of speaking with Keaton Kirkwood, a mortgage broker and partner at Kirkwood and Brennan Mortgage Group. We start off the show by talking about interest rates and how some changes with underwriting practices. We then dive into Keaton's recent post that went viral with more than 800,000 views. The post was about how he and his wife were trying to buy their first home in the Lower Mainland for more than a million dollars. The thought of the high mortgage payments was keeping them up at night. They ended up moving to take a more financially conservative approach. This move had a very positive impact on him and his family. Hey, Keaton, just wanted to welcome you back to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. Yeah, I'm excited to have you back on. How's it going today? That's been good. Just recovering from very modest jet lag of flying to Vancouver from Alberta. Yeah, that would be pretty modest, I think. <laughs> oh, very, very. But it was busy 18, 19 hour days for four days. Well, you actually you know the time change. They do say that has significant impact on people, a negative impact. And yeah, it's, here it's coming again, and we're all going to be feeling that one hour change. All to help farmers way back in the day. Like at a certain point, do they just ask if this is necessary or not? <laughs> but I, I'm by no means that's right. I mean, either for anybody that maybe hasn't heard you on the show, could you just maybe give a quick introduction? Sure. My name is Keaton Kirkwood. I'm an investor and tax strategy focused mortgage broker. That's what makes us different, but we're happy to work with any clients doing anything. And I've been in the industry nine years, used to run one of the top investment focused mortgage teams in Canada, went out my own a week before my first child was born because start a business, have a baby, right? That's just the package deal. Uh, we won rookie of the year across Canada our first year, hit top 2% of brokers our second year and started our own brokerage our third year. And just my business partner and I were 100% referral based. And we approached the mortgage business just a little bit differently, I'd say. I think we're relatively unique in the industry. It's amazing, man. If you weren't busy enough, right? Have a baby and a move and everything all at the same time. Oh, I was developing like all our systems, our CRM, all the automation in that to just try to be efficient, building a website. Yeah, it was a lot. I feel bad for my wife as I was working a fair bit, but yeah, who needs yeah. sleep, right? <laughs> That's overrated. So I was going to ask you what's keeping you busy these days, but clearly uh, everything, it's like you're just... I just spent the last three days at a real estate investing conference. So it was actually very interesting to see the psychology and behavior of real estate investors. It's interesting how you can get one group of people that see certain news like rates rising and you know the economy slowing down and they get excited for it while the excited they see opportunity ability to help people make money whatever it may be while the general public is just it's a pure negative and i think it goes to show that no matter what changes there's good and bad in almost everything and there's opportunity in almost everything and it's just a matter of looking for it i agree what were some takeaways from that conference it wasn't so much a takeaway per se the belief that i've had for a while was really reinforced which is if you want to be a real estate investor you have to treat this like a business you need to match your expectations with the energy you're going to put in and the strategies you're applying, and you need to be prepared. Real estate investing is not friendly to the gunslinging amateur anymore. It's just not. It's as you've experienced it, I've experienced that lending's more difficult, the market's more competitive, opportunities are either fewer or far between or require a more educated or in-depth approach to identify the market shifting faster than ever. Like we're seeing changes in Airbnb, UHT or underutilized housing tax. And so trust declarations are required. The complexity of personal ownership versus corporate ownerships expanding. 
I wouldn't say it's harder. It just requires more support, more of a team. So I would say that's probably the biggest takeaway and the realization. It's one thing as a professional who, like I was there as a professional to help these 200 people learn and grow. It's one thing for me to know. But what I saw that was different is the investors knew it. Whether they were experienced or inexperienced, new or well-seasoned, they understood that they needed help that accountants, brokers, inspectors, realtors, they needed a team working cohesively for them rather than them just being the general and just, you know, telling you as the realtor, go find me a deal. And then they find the deal and then they find some lending person, go get me a mortgage. And then they go to their accountant and say, go do my taxes. That approach doesn't work anymore. Everybody needs to be working as a team, as like a rope. We need to be braided together and pulling together for you as an investor. I've seen repeatedly over the last couple of years, that's what separates those who thrive versus survive. Yeah, well said. Touched on a little bit. Are you seeing a bit more tightening up of the lending practices like for underwriting? 100%. It's everybody's lost. I stopped counting. It's, it's gone up so much, but it's last time I counted it was about 30 or something. Close to 40% of your borrowing power for the property you are financing. Now we need to remember that's for the property we're financing. If we own multiple rental properties and the cost of those rental properties have gone up as well, some investors have lost 60, 70, 80 many have lost 100% of their borrowing power because they've been pushed past the point of qualifying. So it's becoming more and more critical to plan ahead because if you build a portfolio that doesn't align with what you're trying to achieve, let's be honest, Corey, neither of us would say that lending was easy four years ago, but relatively speaking, it was. And it's requiring either more and more income, so brute force to qualify, or it requires a little more planning, a little more tactical choice of what you buy, when you buy it, how you structure is it a long-term rental, short-term rental? We do a lot of, should it be in a corporation? And then we use all different ways that lending and rules overlap. And the short answer is it is tightening and the need to navigate those different interactions is going up and up. Are you seeing some investors maybe that are just, you know, would typically be able to just go refinance, not be able to qualify at this point because of some of the changes? 100%. We did this the very first time we did a podcast. We had one topic and we ended up on commercial so we're not going to do it. This <laughs> okay, the commercial okay. world is being hammered by that. We could do another time. We'll talk about it. But yes, we are seeing very real impact, particularly in the commercial world, but also in the residential world. And obviously lenders are just, they're trying to protect themselves. They're nervous that people are overextending themselves financially. 100%. I've heard this from a few different banks, different lenders. Fraud is through the roof because relatively few will commit fraud proactively. Very few people say, I'm going to go you know, commit true mortgage fraud. But a larger percentage of people went backed into a corner and facing a situation of bad outcomes. That door starts to look appealing for you know a relatively small percentage of the population, but a growing number. And the rising rates, loss of purchasing power, appraisals are more difficult, faster timelines, developers are more nervous. Lenders are overall more strict on their underwriting criteria. The federal government's breathing over everyone through a group called OSFI. All of that together creates an environment where fraud numbers are through the roof, relatively speaking. Forget everything I just said. Just because of the fraud itself, lenders are cautious, let alone market conditions, appraisal conditions, rates, the volatility. So here's another one. Concerns about consumer behavior. Rates went low in 2020. Many people flocked into five-year fixed products. It was great for a year and a bit. And then as rates rose, the terms that people chose have been shortening. So not only did you get a very large percentage of homeowners and people borrowing take five-year options three years ago, but as time has gone on, people have been choosing shorter and shorter terms. But if you have 20% of the population take a five-year mortgage, 
and then let's just say two years later, 20% of the population takes a three-year mortgage. One year later, a certain percentage of the population takes a two-year mortgage. All of those people, even though they finance at different times in different markets, renew at the same time. So there's starting to be concern about we're going to have a disproportionate percentage of Canadians renewing at the same time. And there's concerns of what that could bring for the banking system, for rates, for the market as a whole. Yeah, that's interesting. I like how you put that, how they're all going to renew pretty similar time, even though the five-year spread. I know this may be too deep to dive into right now. If I came to you and I'm like, I got to renew my mortgage, I've got an auto payment, maybe some personal debt credit cards. So probably going to be eliminating some of that debt, right? On the refi? Yes, but I think we can probably agree, and this, the polls reflect this, that many Canadians are feeling less certain or less confident about the future. Can't speak for everyone. Maybe I'm a millennial, so maybe it's just I'm being a whiny millennial. But I feel like my future will be harder to build and stabilize than my parents were. I mean, as the example, my dad in the early 90s worked at Overweighty as a produce guy for $27 an hour with benefits and a pension. Like, what? Guy put vegetables on the stand at night. I feel like my kids will have an even harder time than I did. So I think that now's the time where we have to start thinking forward and being proactive because the reality is the choices we make today are going to define the rest of our lives. And I know that sounds cliche, but when it comes to money and it comes to retirement planning, it is a thousand percent true because of the power of compounding. On Thursday, I landed for this real estate investing conference. I'm starting to get into the real estate investing mindset, but I had three hours in a hotel room to do nothing. So, you know, did what any sane person would do. I pulled out my financial calculator. I pulled out my Remarkable. And I started crunching the numbers of what is financially better for someone. Should you take a 25-year mortgage and have higher payments, but a lower cost, be mortgage-free five years faster? That makes a significant difference because a $3,000 mortgage payment times 60 monthly payments, that's five years. Well, that's a huge difference. You're not paying $3,000 a month for five whole years. Mm. So instinct is, oh, well, that's the better choice. Well, I wanted to prove it. So I calculated if you take a 30-year mortgage, your payments, I believe off memory, are about $170 a month lower. What if you invest that $170 a month for 25 years? What do you have? And I calculated it out. And I'll tell you, the results are not necessarily what the public would expect. You're better off to take the 30-year mortgage, invest. As long as you earn, I believe it was 6.5% interest or higher, you come out ahead. If you average a 10% return, which is a little bit below the S&P 500 average over the last 40 years, you'll come out on a $500,000 mortgage, you'll come out $100,000 ahead, assuming at year 25, you pay off the mortgage with the investments. You still have 100,000 left over. So 30-year mortgage is better than a 25. And I've been accounted for 30-year mortgages are usually 0.1% more than 25-year mortgages. I accounted for all of it. But then I said, wait, can we go one step further? What if you wait 30 years? So what if the 25 mortgage person says, oh, that's great, neighbor. You've got a little more money than you owe. But I'm going to take this $3,000 a month. I no longer have to pay. And I'm going to invest all of it. For five years, I'm going to invest $3,000 a month. Whereas the 30-year mortgage person still just put $170 in. Well, the gap gets even bigger. The 30-year mortgage ends up almost $200,000 ahead. So oh, then I went, okay, well, can we take this one step further? And I factored in the Smith maneuver. And I calculated the differences. And surprisingly, 25 and 30-year mortgage, almost no difference with the Smith Maneuver. But the Smith Maneuver makes a million-dollar difference compared to the person who just took the 25-year mortgage and did nothing. So that was kind of an interesting thought process. And I did one other one I'll share quick. I thought of, okay, what if someone's parents are giving them $100,000? Or what if someone sold their home and they're buying a new home? Are you better off to put 5% down on a $500,000 purchase, which is $25,000? So are you better off to put $25,000 down to buy a $500,000 home, knowing 
you have to pay a $19,000 insurance premium. So you lose 19 grand day one, gone. CMHC, the government takes and says, thanks. But you have $75,000 left to invest. So are you better to put 5% down, pay the insurance premium, have 75 grand and invest it versus taking either a 25 or 30 year mortgage and you'll have lower payments because you have a smaller mortgage, investing the difference in the monthly payments was almost a $500,000 difference in favor of putting 5% down as long as you earned a 7% return or higher. So 7% was roughly, you were came out about 100,000 ahead. A 10% return on average came out almost 500,000 ahead. That's so it's, incredible. Yeah, so I, sorry, I got, I get a little excited about this stuff. I'm a little bit of a nerd, but I spent three hours running through different scenarios. And I've come to the conclusion that finances are very counterintuitive. And I've got a fun little one for you that maybe we can use as a soundbite. So it's, let's say, Corey, that you come to me or you come to your accountant and you need to buy a car. And you being a realtor, you need a sexy car. It's going to cost $100,000. It's got to be a Tesla or something nice, right? Oh, I drive a Jeep Wrangler. That's my sexy realtor vehicle. <laughs> you need the new Bronco with hundred grand. <laughs> so you have the choice of buying a $100,000 vehicle in cash because you've got the money in the bank account. And if you buy it in cash, obviously, there's no payments. Or you can finance it at 6% interest for six years, which means you have your $100,000 just sitting around. And you can invest that $100,000 at 4% interest. So quickly summarize for the soundbite. Is it a better choice to buy a $100,000 vehicle in cash or to finance it at 6% interest over six years and invest that $100,000 at 4% interest? Which is the better choice? Now we're going to put you on the spot, Corey. Uh, for me, I've always liked the idea of just having my vehicles paid for. And I've done this and my accountant kind of slapped my hand for it about, you know, especially when something goes wrong, that leasing is better. Now with the Jeep, I just leased it. I went and leased it. So that way I didn't have to pull any capital out of my pocket. So I'm going to go with the lease payment. Is Lease is the better option. Well, we were debating lease versus finance. But <laughs> the short answer is the individual who borrows at 6% with a six-year financing on the car and invests at 4% will come out $8,000 ahead, which is kind of cool. Like once again, if we're talking about how can you make little changes to improve your life, your future... Once again, if we make three or four little changes and you end up with an extra 400,000 when you're retired, I don't know, you know, I bet a piece of pizza is going to be a hundred bucks, but I'll venture a guess that that means you can probably help your kids with their university. You can probably help them with getting married and you might even be able to help them buy their first home. So little changes today can make a massive impact for tomorrow. And obviously it goes without saying, but the person that does this, you know, you have to have the due diligence and the foresight to basically be investing that money. Because I think a lot of people, unfortunately, will end up spending that extra money that's in their pocket today on that vacation or whatever that might be, right? On the, And that's where it's more of an immediate benefit. Well, how does my lifestyle change today as opposed to what does it look like, you know, compounding 25 years from now? Remember earlier I said that we operate different than most brokers. I actually, and these are people I work with personally, but I have a chartered professional accountant who Smith Maneuver certified, specializes in that, uses participating whole life for his own corporate structure for estate planning, like complex chartered professional accountant who's in his early 40s. And I have a financial planner I work with who's in his mid 30s, also specialized Smith Maneuver certified, understands participating whole life, interested in estate planning. And whenever I connect with a client, I have a conversation beyond the mortgage and we talk about goals, future planning. As a broker, we just, we collect the data. It's a part of our job to understand what your situation is, your finances. I don't collect any referral fees on this. I don't sell any of this, but I will spend an extra 20 minutes to an hour, usually with a client to identify opportunities and say, hey, do you have the people to help you with this? Or would you like me to connect you with the people I work with personally? And these are the people I use for my own family, my own planning. 
it brings the ability that when someone's faced these decisions, I don't just simply dump you in a 30 year mortgage and say, good luck, go do this, but rather make sure you have the professionals to do it and professional oversight to make sure you do it well. Because there are tax considerations in these examples. There's obviously the risk of your investments. There's a question of what is your financial stability and how much of a, what we call it, a contingency fund or reserve fund you need. You know, this stuff can be quite simple, but there are simple questions that have really important answers that have to be asked. Yeah, that makes sense. You touched on it briefly, but I just wanted to circle back on the OSFI rule changes because it sounded like maybe they were going to have quite a few changes and they might be maybe making some adjustments. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit? For sure. So OSFI is concerned about the stability of the Canadian housing system and the Canadian banking system. They regulate the federally regulated banks. So think your big five banks, your banks like Wealth One, ICICI, KEB, and then your monoline lenders and your B lenders. So OSFI's job is to make sure that everybody's safe. Well, what do businesses do? They try to make money. What do you do with making money in competition? You tend to try to innovate. OSPI hates innovation, at least in the form of being more aggressive or working on rules. So they were debating doing income to debt ratios, reducing or adjusting the total debt service, so the amount of payments you have proportional your income. They were considering reducing the amortization for qualifying, further adding to or altering the stress test. And a couple of weeks ago, they basically came back and said, we've thought it over and they went through, I believe off memory, the loan to income. So this would be for investors that have a large portfolio or people that have a lot of assets. We can push things a little further for someone that has a lot of income or a lot of assets. Also, we wanted to wipe that out. Well, they said, well, we realize this is going to be really hard to administer and it's probably not needed. So they walked that one back. Basically adjusting the total income to debt you can have from like a total debt service perspective, they once again said, well, we're going to do more study, but we don't think any changes are needed yet. And that was the theme. Every change they considered, they either said, it's going to be really difficult to administer, we're not going to do it, or maybe it's a good idea, but further studies needed. So I think this is OSFI having puffed up its chest, told the banking industry, if you don't regulate yourselves, we're going to come in and we're going to break things. As a result, as we've discussed, we've seen the tightening in the lending industry the lenders are looking over their shoulder. They're trying to make sure they do well and they're not putting people in bad loans or setting people up for failure. I think whether due to market changes, whether due to political pressure or due to just the way that the world's going and how the lenders are acting, OSFI's backed off a little bit. And I think that ultimately for people in real estate or Canadians in general, that's a good thing because you need to have professionals, you need to have policies and systems that keep people from making bad decisions that they can't go through with. But there's a balance between protecting people and just simply restricting people from being able to do things like buy a home or you know, purchase an investment property. So I think overall, it's a good thing that they're backing off, at least for now. Yeah, yeah, well said. You know, offline, we talked about it just briefly, but I was going to ask you about that announcement or I don't know if it was a blog post, but there's a major developer in Vancouver that's that sounds like it's going to going to receivership. Yeah, one of the people that I respect and follow on Twitter was just announcing and they've been thinking this isn't a news source, this is an industry professional, but they have a track record of being accurate. And I think no different. By the time things hit the media, it's been known for months and months and months because it's usually a public press release at that point. But this individual, his name is Steve, was indicating that one of the larger developers in Vancouver is going to be going bankrupt essentially in six months just due to loss of debt, projects not working out. So there's always a chance that they're wrong and this doesn't happen. But based on this individual, I'm going to assume that they know someone at that developer where it's, you know, uh, usually bankruptcy takes a time to happen, right? You know, it's but 
there's a lot of momentum behind it. And usually they know it's inevitable, right? If you're a developer, if you've got no projects to sell in the next two years, you know you're going to have no revenue coming in. If you've got no assets to sell quickly or you have more debt than they're worth, well, if you've got six months of carrying costs before you can't pay your bills and you've got no way to bring in money, you know it's inevitable. You know what's going to happen. So it's interesting to see. I think some cracks are starting to form in the industry. The number of housing starts has been falling pretty steadily for the last year. So while vacancy is an all-time low, they're building less housing because the cost to build is through the roof due to labor, materials, cost of borrowing, land values have not really dropped. And at the end of the day, developers, they're businesses, they're not charities. They're not going to invest tens of millions of dollars if there's not a reasonable expectation they'll be okay on the other side. That makes sense. I was just kind of curious, I know you're outside Edmonton, we're going to talk about your blog post in a few minutes, but... As a lender, are you seeing like what's the Edmonton market like? Are you seeing like pretty much everything coming in has conditions on it and it's like uh, more balanced? Because Calgary, obviously, we're seeing it's still pretty hot depending on the price point. So it's the same old, same old. Calgary is a sports car. It goes fast. It makes a lot of noise. It's sexy. Everybody wants it. <laughs> but every other week, it's broken down. So Calgary tends to get the swings, the volatility. You know, it, it's amazing. It's awful. It's somewhere in between. I'm talking about how it, it's beautiful to live there. Don't get me wrong. But the real estate market, the prices, Edmonton is a tractor. It's loud. It's noisy. It just plods along. It does its thing. It's still just doing its thing. Now that tractor's in fourth gear right now. It's going faster than it usually does. So yes, the Edmonton market's moving. There's more offers. We are seeing some subject-free deals, but they're relatively rare. We're seeing tighter deals with conditions. We're not seeing crazy 20, 25 person multiples, but we are often seeing either threat of multiples and you need to go quick, or we're seeing two, three, four offers in competition, but nothing insane. It's a nice, balanced, healthy market that's slightly shifted on the active side. Yeah, I love the analogy. It probably depends on the price point and the product as well as to whether you're seeing how much pressure's on it, right? Yeah, condos suck and seem to always suck in Edmonton. Townhouses are the hot button right now. So we saw this a few years back because I'm licensed in BC and Alberta and I'm from the BC market, even though we live in Edmonton now. Townhouses had a period in Greater Vancouver where they just went nuts because houses had gotten expensive enough that people had, well, okay, we're not going to get a house, but still didn't want to be in a condo. So we saw the townhouse market just go absolutely nuts. This seems to be happening again in the Edmonton market. And I don't know the exact appreciation, but I do know that condos are still struggling. Townhouses are moving. We're seeing a lot of clients that are interested in them. Because where in BC, at least, where in Ontario, can you get a nice renovated townhouse in a decent, healthy strata in a good part of town for 175 grand, 200 grand? You know, it's insane. I was actually looking the other day. I got suspicious. I had a client that wanted to write an offer on a house for $100,000 in Lamont, Alberta, which is like 50 minutes out of Edmonton. It was $100,000 and it was a foreclosure. It was in slightly rougher shape, like the floors were painted, but it was built in 1995. The clients had seen it, had one vertical crack in the foundation. So not good, but a single vertical crack is not the end of the world. Had a new roof. It was in reasonable condition and kitchen was in good condition, working furnace and everything. It was $100,000. Wow. So I started going on a search looking at like Redwater, Lamont, these different, these are smaller towns. There's some good, some bad, but you can get nice renovated houses for like $150,000, $200,000. So, and I'm sure you feel the same way, but I laugh and I feel bad. But when people get frustrated and say, oh, it's impossible, you'll never own a home in Canada. It's just too expensive. No, it's too expensive in Vancouver and Toronto. If you go a little further out, you look a little broader, there are options and opportunities. And hey, I get it. Not everybody can work from a small town, but many people can. There's options. 
This is a perfect segue, actually, because I'm going to start asking about your blog post. So some of the listeners maybe haven't didn't see it or didn't get a chance to read it. Could you maybe just give us a high level of the blog post, what it was about? And yeah, just the impact that it's having. I grew up in BC. When I was 21, I moved to Alberta. I worked in oil and gas for a few years, and then I moved back to Vancouver. Eventually, I met my wife. We got married, had a baby. We were getting ready to buy a home. This is early 2021. Do our research. I've been in the industry at this time, seven years, roughly. And we set up a search. We were looking like Chilliwack Abbotsford because we knew we were not. We had dogs and kids and all that stuff. My wife has a horse because that's her thing in life. And very quickly, we realized in late 2021 that a teardown house in Chilliwack was going to be like $1.1 million. And I was worried about rates going up at the time because single income household, mortgage broker, my income's tied to interest rates in real estate. I was losing sleep over this. So I plotted and schemed and tricked my wife, sort of. <laughs> I pulled up a Kijiji listing because I knew that I liked Alberta and that the prices were a lot lower. So I pull up in Kijiji one night because I've been losing sleep and it was not fun. And I started looking at acreages outside of Edmonton. And there's at the time, and there still are, there's quite a few acreages in like the four to $500,000 range that had a few acres, decent older house, like 80s, 70s, flipped through. And I found about 10, 15. And I found one that had a picture of the house. The fence was in the background and there was a horse just standing there staring at the person taking the photo. So I, I'm like, ah, this is the one. This is the one, Corey. I knew my wife. Wow, that's a really good deal. And I just mutter it out loud. And my wife's like, what, what? You, you know, yeah. what? what are you <laughs> I'm like, oh. Well, I guess this. And the trap was sprung. So she's like, where is this? Looks through, flips through photo. What? This can't be real. It's $400,000 or It's like, no, no, it's Alberta. You know, this is like 45 minutes west of Edmonton. Next thing you know, she kind of just starts ignoring me and goes back. And she's in the page of all the Kijiji listings and just goes through home after home after home. Two hours later, she puts the phone down, barely spoken to me. We're moving to Alberta. So, <laughs> and then I went through kind of our move to Alberta. But that's how I convinced my wife to move to Alberta. It was just, I showed her what was out there. So this 1.1 million in Chilliwack, like was it on an acreage or was it a... It's like a, you know, seven, 8,000 square foot house. I should say early 2022, late 2021 was basically the peak of the market. Because if you remember correctly, it was March, May of 2022 that rates started to go up. So we were like literally looking to buy because I was self-employed and I had to wait for my taxes to be filed for 2022, which has to be done February of 2023. Or sorry, 2021 tax had to be filed. So it was February 2022. So we had this weird, we knew we wanted to buy, but we had this milestone, which was we needed our notice of assessments back from CRA. And the market was just going nuts. So we're watching it go up and up and up. And like, you know, at this time, the Vancouver market was going up like two, 3% a month, basically, maybe more in some markets. So it was, I had a realtor buddy of mine that I trust. Shout out to Jordan Spitters, exceptional investment focused realtor in Abbotsford. And he was very real with us, but he showed us what was out there. And it was just, it was incredibly competitive. This is when like everything's going subject free, you know, blindly bidding over ask, no inventory. It was just nuts. It was keeping me up at night. I was super stressed about it. Like we would have had like a million plus dollar mortgage. And, you know, I was worried at like 10% interest rates. Was what I was. I didn't think it would happen, but I don't want to have the possibility of something being guaranteed bankruptcy. And ten percent interest rates would have been guaranteed bankruptcy. Like I would have had to made one hundred eighty thousand dollars a year just to pay my bloody mortgage and property taxes. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so I, what happened? Scheme was able to convince my wife to move to Alberta. Story was on. <laughs> so then, what was the timeline? So when she was on board and saw that you know your money could go further, how much time went by until you guys? Hey, let's actually go check some of these properties out. So we, we wrote an offer sight unseen, actually, two offers. So it was November-ish, late October, early November that we discussed it, showed her the photos. We started looking. 
So I reached out to a realtor that I knew in the Edmonton market and I said, Hey, could you set me up on a search? We want, you know, acreages under, I think it was $800,000 within an hour of Edmonton. Minimum, I think we said was three acres. Maximum, I think was, we said at 15, but we actually wanted 10 as the max because lending gets a little weird after 10 acres. And we, in January, we wrote our first offer. It was on the West side of them. It was an absolute mansion on five acres for like $810,000. Actually, 830. So we wrote 833. It was in multiples on an acreage outside of Edmonton. We got outbid. Someone bid like 900. We lost. It was kind of crushing. This was like you walk in, it was like two stairwells up, like vaulted, you know, with a balcony basically in the house overlooking. It was a mansion. Like I'll never probably own a house that nice. And that's why we wrote it. It was just beautiful, but it was backed on an airport and we weren't certain we were going to buy it. We got an accepted offer, but we wanted to try it. Anyways. But a month after that, so it would have been early February, we were getting to the point where we could really write offers, like we could be really competitive. And we stumbled across a property that three months before, my wife said, nope, don't like the kitchen. Had like wood cupboards. That's a no-no for her, apparently. But it was on 10 acres. It was in the east side of Edmonton. And it had been on the market for like a year and a half, which is why I laugh. Like some people in Alberta are like, oh, you're the reason the housing prices are gone up. I'm like, we bought a house that hadn't sold in a year and a half for under asking. We negotiated very aggressively. I think it was listed for 732. We ended up paying 716, but we wrote an offer. We had needed like four weeks for conditions because I needed to get my notice of assessments back. So we wrote the offer, got accepted. Then we booked flights, like 75 bucks to fly out. We saw the property in early April, no, early March. And we liked it. So we ended up, we bought it and we moved out end of May or beginning of May, actually. Sorry. And that one was sight unseen as well. You like you were under the contract. But yeah, conditions. It's like three weeks conditions. Perfect. You guys weren't concerned about sorry, it was the west side of Edmonton or the east side you're on? The first one was on the west side. The one we bought was just outside of Sherwood Park in a little community called Ardrawson. So it's east of Edmonton. Okay, east of Edmonton. Because sometimes people want to drive around the area and see what it's close to. Did you just use Google Maps and, and just kind of do your research that way? Well. We knew that we wanted to move. Like we were decided at that point. Carolina, my wife, had seen like the idea of an acreage in like we'd been out to like Salmon Arm. We considered Williams Lake. Like we considered Fort St. John, like everywhere in BC. If we wanted to be anywhere near a city, it just was not going to happen. And by city, I mean like Kamloops, like Vernon. It just realistically was not going to happen at a price point we were comfortable with. So we knew for sure we wanted to move. I used to live in Edmonton for a few years when I worked in oil and gas. I knew the area moderately well, but ultimately we tied it up. We had a conditional offer and then we flew out. Worst case, if the inspection sucked, if the property sucked, you know, if there was your stereotypical people in a lifted pickup truck with guns and a gun rack on the truck revving the engine next door, and we weren't comfortable, we would have just canceled the offer. But that wasn't the case. The neighbors were super welcoming. Everyone's friendly. Like our neighbor, our driveway is like 150 feet long. Our neighbor does our driveway every time it snows. Bombs over in a skid steer. Does our other neighbor's driveway as well. Like we just did Halloween with the kids yesterday. The little town of Ardrossan, there's like 700 people trick-or-treating in the little avenue there. You didn't, you, didn't get, you didn't go walk the driveways on the acreages? Sorry, cutting you off there. But I was just envisioning you guys walking those long driveways on the acreages to get the poor kids would not do so well. <laughs> no, but so that's why everyone goes to Ardrossan and it's like more of a... Makes sense. Makes sense. What other benefits? So like, obviously, so a lower mortgage, the lower mortgage payment, less risk that way, and you get a different lifestyle completely. But then obviously, so food, fuel, your taxes are probably lower. So there's probably other additional benefits that way too. Taxes are lower, fuel is cheaper, found food cheaper. Some say it's a little more expensive, but 
it seems to me it's a little cheaper. There's, hey, don't get me wrong. There's less, you know, Vancouver has a better selection of seafood. Alberta's got a better selection of beef. Like, it's trade-offs, but whatever. What else is cheaper over here? We found that certain activities are. The biggest thing, and I'll be blunt, the biggest thing was that our mortgage is a fraction. It's half of what it would have been if we would have moved to Chilliwack. With a completely different lifestyle. But completely. Like, our neighbors are 350 feet away. There must be 5,000 trees on our property. Like, it's quiet. It's a comfortable place for us to raise our kids. We still have neighbors. We're still have community. We're eight minutes from Walmart, 10 minutes from Costco. Like, it's not like we're out of the way. Yeah. So we can have the balance of a quiet acreage lifestyle while still living minutes from the city. Like, I can be downtown Edmonton if there's minimal traffic in like 20 to 25 minutes. That's amazing. Because Calgary, like, to get anywhere is 10, 15, 20. If you're going to go across, it's longer, right? But, you know, you're not getting anywhere quickly here. Um, yeah, Calgary's got terrible traffic. That's one thing I will give Edmonton. There's a lot of things that Calgary does great, but Edmonton's got the win on the traffic. There's basically rush we've improved. Yeah, we've improved a little with Ring Road getting completed. And well, there's still one section underway, but it has improved a little. And then extra due diligence on the acreage. So just so listeners know, and they probably already know, but obviously you got a well and you got septic and that kind of stuff. So those are some of the things you'd want checked. We did a home inspection. We did a water potability test, which is free. So we were lucky. We had the septic inspected, but the owner had fully replaced it two years before. New septic tank and field. They spent like 50 grand on it, which is arguably one of the bigger pieces of infrastructure for a property outside of like the house and the foundation. But there was one thing. I know you have experienced a home inspector. There was snow on the roof. So we knew how old the roof was. You know, you do your best. You shovel some snow off. The inspector tried their very best. But ultimately, we ended up replacing the roof six months later. Mm. Could we have gone longer? Probably. But we plan on owning this home for 50 plus years. Like, we love it. Why play games? Because, okay, we wait a year to replace the roof. We wait two, three years. Do you really save anything big picture? Not really. You just push the cost away. But... If the roof leaks and you get water in your insulation in your house, it's it's a nightmare, right? So yeah, last thing you want the nine one one in you know February, it's thawed and all of a sudden you got water dripping in your house. Well, roofing company's not coming out till May, <laughs> so you're gonna have to figure it out, right? So I'm a believer of be proactive. If you know something needs to be dealt with, figure out how to deal with it. Yeah, I agree. Now, do lenders look at an acreage maybe as a little bit more higher risk? Mm, not really. Big acreages, yes. So anything that is farming activity, absolutely. Uh, but this is country residential zoning, which is basically like really big lot. Like we're allowed to have like 30 horses, like 10 dogs, 100 chickens. Like there's a lot of flexibility with the zoning. But at the end of the day, it's still residential zoning. Like you can't run a mechanical shop out of it. or So it's, it's very flexible. But as long as you get 10 acres or less, it's basically totally normal lending. But the one thing you need to know, and this is true of totally normal lending as well, Lenders will lend on the value of the home and a two-car garage. They do not lend on the value of outbuildings. There are certain lenders that will lend on 50 to 150 acres without concern. So it's just a matter of knowing where to go. Yeah, that's a uh, good piece to note. The 10 acres kind of lucky. and the outbuildings. This is the world I live. This is the thing I'm an expert in. So that was the easy part. So this post, this blog post got a significant amount of interest and traction and comments and stuff I think online. It 800,000 people. Well, I know it. Uh, Facebook gives me analytics. <laughs> it is 800,000 people. So. Yeah, that's incredible. Now, do you think it's because there's maybe a growing number of people in some of these other areas that are just maybe a little bit fed up with, you know, the dream of home ownership is probably not possible. For sure. The post went up and there was two groups. There was Albertans and non-Albertans. The majority of Albertans were warm and welcoming when this went viral. It's like this ended up with 
3,400 likes, like 1,300 comments, like it reasonably, like little Canadian viral, but it went in front of a lot of people. And the general sentiment from Albertans was welcome. The minority was leave your politics at home. You're the reason housing prices are going up, but we're talking maybe one out of 100. It wasn't much. The flip sides for non-Alberta people, there was there were really three camps. One was, how do I do this? Or people saying, we've moved as well. We love it or whatever. A very small number of people were like, we moved and we regret it, or we used to live in Alberta. We, you know, we would never go back. And then I guess one of the other groups was, oh, well, welcome to Redneckville, or, you know, the politics are crazy out there. Or very small percentage, but there were some people. There's one guy who ended up in like a battle with like 100 people. He must have been like 70 of the comments. He was like, but it's Alberta. And then he just kept doubling down. People were like, come on, dude. And he was very belligerent, but so there's lots of debates on there. But the one thing that shocked me is a lot of people were like, that's bullshit. You're lying. Like one person was like, there's no way you spent that and you're here. And so I was like commenting like tidbits of my purchase contract to show the price. Wow. Someone's like, that's not Alberta, that photo. And I'm like, it's not a stock image. Like it's my driveway. I took it with a camera. Like I stood there and took the photo. That is Alberta. <laughs> like, yeah. So it was shocking the amount of people that wanted to just go, la, la, la. That's not true. That can't be true. Or a surprising number of people are like, oh, well, this was two years ago or a year and a half ago. It's not that way. Now I've looked. You can't get that now. Funny enough, I still want to search to see acreages in the area because I'm curious. There is a house, four houses for me. So it's maybe 400 meters away. And it's on three acres. It's a 90s house. It's a nice little thing. It's unsold. It's been on the market for four or five months for $516,000. So like I had my rebuttals. People hey, were like, oh, that's bullshit. That'll be a million dollars. I'm like, bam, acreage, 500 grand. Isn't that's, sold. That's a good plug right there too. To reach out to Keaton if you want to be one of Keaton's neighbors, and he'll get you the financing too. <laughs> but yeah, it's no, yeah. it's true though. I, I did a search too after reading your blog post. I did a search as well to see what values were, and and obviously if, if it's you know a newer home and it's big square footage, that kind of stuff, it's going to cost more, just like any market. But if it's you know like something that needs some work and renos and you can put some sweat equity in, well, there's still some good value out there. And this is uh, a '70s house. It has hardwood floors. The kitchen was in decent condition. Like we ended up replacing the roof and the hot water tank. So there were some minor-ish things. Maybe you consider a roof a big thing. I don't know. The furnace is a little older. It's about 18, 19 years. So we know we will be replacing that. But other than that, like structurally, it's solid. It's you know the outbuildings are a little bit older. But at the end of the day, like. It's what we wanted. And I think that's the important thing is we wanted to escape the financial pressure and stress of either being a renter and just praying that the landlord didn't sell or move a family member in and kick us out because rents had like doubled in seven years in the time we were there or buying way more home than we wanted, right? We had the choice of compromising in a big way and moving to a condo or a townhouse with like dogs, cats, bunnies, kids. It just, it wasn't going to work for the lifestyle we had or we had to make a big change and move provinces. I stand by. I have most of my family and friends are in BC. It's a great choice. It's just one that I couldn't afford. I think with costs going up, there's more people realizing that maybe they can't afford it either. And the immigration stats, even from like, we're not talking people from outside of Canada, but people in Canada are not alone. And I think that's why it went viral is there's a lot of people thinking about it. There's a lot of pressure for people to try to cut costs. And this is one of the ways that, you know, potentially you can is moving. And I don't want to sound. I don't know, I'm not sensitive here, but when we told our family we were going to move, it was like heads exploded. You can't do that. Oh my God, it's so far. You're going to disrupt your lives. Like the winters, there are all sorts of objections. The winters aren't that bad. They're cold, but it's dry. But I don't know about you, Corey, but just about everybody I know who's not First Nations, their families came from somewhere very, very far away. 
And, you know, whether it was our grandparents, great grandparents, parents made way bigger changes than moving from BC to Alberta, where it's a 50 minute flight to fly back home for $50. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I, I digress, I ramble. So were there any negatives? Just we're getting close to the end here, but any negatives? Like, did you have like, was the internet slow? Did you have to make some adjustments that oh, way? Definitely some negatives. It wasn't perfect. Winter is different. It's sunnier and it's drier, but it's cold. Yeah. Kind of like Calgary. I'm not... So we're outside every single day for a couple hours dealing with chores and stuff. So we're out more than anyone who doesn't work outdoors, I'd argue. It's not that bad. Home insurance is a little bit higher due to hail and stuff. Property taxes are a little bit higher, dollar per dollar, just because snow removal and there's a little more cost to the infrastructure here. Utilities are more expensive. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. What else is there? Oh, there was one last one I wanted to touch on. Why, uh, why we have to drive further distances. Why so, are the utilities more expensive? What's the... Delivery fees, everything's more expensive here for utilities. Oh, I see, okay. Once again, we're talking, okay, is it more expensive? Yes, but the net change is still very much in the favor of cheaper. Yeah. You know, like, hey, if I had a million-dollar mortgage in Alberta and a million-dollar mortgage in BC, and we just broke down costs, maybe BC comes out ahead. I don't know. But a million-dollar mortgage does not get you the same thing in Alberta as a million-dollar mortgage does... In BC, we were able to get something that we could never dream of in our lifetimes if our goal was acreage and within, let's call it, 30 minutes of a city, a population center of, let's say, more than 100,000 people, 200,000 people. It just would have never been possible. Whereas we got it here for, you know, we got 10 acres in the 70s house for $716,000. At the time we were looking, apples to apples, that would have been over a six, 7,000 square foot house that was borderline teardown would have been 1.1, 1.2 million. So, you know, while some costs are higher, the overall picture is much cheaper. I think it's a similar story. Yours, the lifestyle difference, because you went rural and acreage, obviously is not everybody's story, but it, there's a lot of people that I think they see the same thing, whether it's Edmonton or Calgary. But if you're coming from Vancouver or the GTA, and hey, I've got a two bedroom, one bath condo, or maybe it has two baths and it's worth 1.1 million. It's like, even if I lived right in Edmonton or Calgary, that money goes a long ways. You know, you could have a yard, you can have you know, just a lot more space to raise a family. And yeah, I think a lot of people recognize that, right? Is that affordability piece. One of the things like we spent way more than we needed to because the I work from home. So upstairs is the big decision maker. And I don't think I could have convinced my wife to move to Edmonton to live in a house in the city. It would have cost us $350,000 for essentially what we got if it wasn't an acreage, it was in the city. So we could have spent far, far less, but we wouldn't have had an acreage. And an acreage is what... I needed to bring to the table to get my wife to want to move out here. So we did it. But one of the things I want to talk about, and maybe this is too personal, I don't know, you can edit it out if this is no good. But I've had panic attacks since I was 10, 11. Like in my sleep, I'll wake up and, you know, it's a, an anxiety, basically your fight or flight triggers and you don't know why and you, you get really muddled head. And due to COVID and all the stress, the mortgage world was really busy, real estate was really busy. Before we moved, I was starting to have panic attacks like almost weekly. And I was starting to get them while I was awake. And they suck. I didn't even know what they were until I was seeing a counselor. And I was like, oh, that's a panic attack. I was like, oh, I just thought I was like dying and going crazy. Oh. But since I moved here, I've not had a single one. So I have to say one of the biggest benefits for me is the stress is a fraction of what it was in the city. And part of that's me. Like this is a personal thing, but there's no sirens. There's no people yelling at their neighbors or ha arguments happening. It's quiet. It's calm. It's definitely less stressful financially. I don't know if anyone's going to relate to this, but that was biggest benefit for me in moving. It's just life is calmer, happier, easier. So, Thanks for sharing that. 
We're going to transition now to the end because we use up all our time. It was like, end of the time for you. No, no, it's good, man. I love having you on. We always go along. It's great. Like it's always, there's tons of nuggets that you leave and get people, you know, interested. And if they haven't seen the post, I'm sure they're going to find it and read it. And yeah. So thank you for sharing. All, and I wanted to get a bit more information about it from you. And you did a great job of that. So any plans for this winter? You guys, you're going to stay home. You're going to go to BC. We are chained to our property. We have four dogs, two cats, two bunnies. My wife has two big horses, a little horse, and then we've got two kids. So my kids will be four and one in November. And we have no family out here. He moved out here with no family or friends this way. So one of the trade-offs is that we can't go that far from home because we'd have to find like some super duper, you know, Ace Ventura pet sitter. <laughs> so no plans to travel. But one of the cool things is honestly, I don't feel the need to travel. I feel quite happy. I've got lots of projects to putter on, lots of trees to burn and, you know, clearing to do. And it's content. It's happy. So lots of time with kids, excited. Like last Christmas was our first Christmas out here. We had a newborn. And a two-year-old, a freshly turned three-year-old, actually. It wasn't easy. So I'm excited for this year, just a nice, relaxing Christmas. You know, some family will probably come out and visit, benefiting from those $60 flights. And it's just going to be relaxing. Spend time on the property at home and work. Don't even have to leave the yard to find your Christmas tree, it sounds like. We don't have many pine trees in the property. They're all (laughs) spruce and stuff, birch, but... It's, it's nice. It's relaxing. It's, once again, it's not for everybody. I'm not saying my choice is better than other choices. For us, it worked. I totally see the appeal. I totally do. I love being out in nature. That's where my go-to for downtime. I'm either out dirt biking or something in the mountains or foothills near a river. Like that's all my kind of brings me energy, right? One of the little cool gems we found is that we are like 30 minutes from Elk Island Park, which is a massive nature reserve that has like a thousand plus buffalo. It's got, I believe, caribou, wolves, coyotes, foxes. I'm not sure if there's bears there. There's deer, like moose. There's everything. And it's cool. It's like literally 25 minutes away. There's like horse riding trails all over. So my wife's super happy. It's been great. That's awesome. We live in the dog park too, so the dogs are happier. It's a ton of fun using the chainsaw too, I have to admit. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm digressing. So, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Facebook, Pete and Kirkwood, or our website, www.kbmortgages.ca. So, Kilo Bravo Mortgages.ca. I'm well. Thank you so much for being on the show again. No worries, man. Always a pleasure. Look forward to coming back. Awesome. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician, and I hold a master home inspection certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at PeckfordCorey, or my website is CoreyPeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.